0: In this episode of the MusicBed Podcast, we chat with three-time Academy Award-winning VFX supervisor, Rob Legato. He's a pioneer and innovator with over 30 years in the industry, and has worked with some of the most iconic directors of all time, like Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, Ron Howard, and Robert Zemeckis. And that's something
1: I discovered in my career a long time ago, is that if you feel something, it transmutes into the film. If you feel nothing, it comes out to be nothing. It might be technically good. But it has no staying power because it doesn't. There's nothing of you. There's no emotion, no point of view that is in there because you didn't have one when you did it.
0: This podcast is a production of Musicbed, the standard in music licensing for film, TV, and advertising. To create your free account today, go to musicbed.com.
2: We are sitting here with Rob Legato. Appreciate you hooking us up with the AC Clubhouse. Yeah. Thank you. It feels, I'm sure on camera a little bit like the Oval Office of uh, <laughs> of the ASC. But, I mean, the history in this place is crazy. Well, huh?
1: it's an honor to be a member, and it's also an honor to be able to shoot in here. Yeah. It's a hollowed ground here. It when did you, back to the when did you become an AC member? God, I don't remember. I think it was right after um, uh, a Hugo, I think it was. Okay,
2: because you did second unit stuff on Hugo, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I did that.
1: second unit on pretty much on almost every movie I've worked on.
2: That's crazy. Correct me if I'm wrong this is going to make my day if it's true, but did you kind of, in terms of visual effects, did you kind of start on Twilight Zone?
1: Yes, I did, actually. The was second that... season of Twilight Zone was my first foray into longer form stuff. I did commercials.
2: Twilight Zone has been like, I mean, I grew up on Twilight Zone, especially the old, old one. Mm. But when I saw that the other day, I was like, no way,
1: dude. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. I actually had the greatest time doing it because I got to... You know, I always liked, uh, when I did commercials, I was never that interested in commercials. I just liked longer form drama yeah. and things like that and and uh, be able to do a nice camera move and a thing, you know. So the uh, idea of doing something uh, that's a little more dramatic, a little more cinematic was something that I was really interested in. I was really saddened that it, it uh, got canceled. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't think it was coincidental, at least I hope not. <laughs> I joined it and then they went out. Right. But,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what the what you would say is like the biggest difference from what you do now versus what you did back then?
1: Well, you know, it's certainly no more, uh, but the the impulse is the same, the desire is the same, the interest is the same, so I I don't know that I do anything differently, but over the years you develop, you know, craft and taste, and some things that you thought were more interesting back then are a little more commonplace now, Mm -hmm. so you, and and you're always trying to invent something new. I mean, my belief system is always that you go to the movies to see something you haven't seen before, and it it doesn't have to be some grand visual, it just has to be a way of treating some people piece of drama in a way that makes it why you're making that movie as opposed to the other movies that that feature that kind of work so uh, so you're always looking for how do I tell the story in in a more unique way
2: for people who are very new to filmmaking could you break down exactly sort of what your role as a visual effects supervisor would like mean like from the ground up
1: Uh, We usually, you know, the definition is, is slightly different on every film, but the basic definition is something that is either too difficult, too expensive, or too dangerous to film. Has to still be filmed in some way, and how do we do it? What, what is what is the the other way of doing it than the traditional way of doing it for those all those reasons? And there's sometimes there's the look of the movie. There is the introduction of a creature or a thing that is can't be filmed because of the nature of it, and then how do we film it? And how do we film it effectively so it looks like we had that object on the set, right. and every shot that we do looks like if we had it there how would we photograph it so that's kind of the job uh sometimes it's interpretive if it's a uh, building a world or something else where because there's not really a foot in reality to, to hang your hat on you you have to develop uh, with previs or yeah. other things to to build and create this world that everybody has to agree is the world that we want to live in
2: i would love to just like I know this is probably going to piss you off a little bit, but just sure. like read Go ahead. off your. kind of piss me off, <laughs> it's all right? Because it's. I mean, that's kind of another question is like, how do you sort of continue to be on these? Icon. It's not just like good movies or great movies. They're like iconic movies, you know, like Apollo 13, Titanic, Armageddon, Castaway. I mean, The Aviator. Just like they're just so iconic in in the zeitgeist of.
1: Well, that's a hard one because I think uh, uh, you know. It's a lot of luck that's involved. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I always use the term that um, I didn't pick the movie. The movie picked me. Yeah, It's like I, I didn't go out and lobby for Apollo 13 or lobby for Interview with the Vampire, which was my first movie, or lobby for Titanic even. Right. I mean, I, I didn't. It, it came to me and it was my choice to say yes or no. When I was approached about Apollo 13, um, you know, I did Star Trek, and I was tired of space and stars and and ships, right. and it's like you know, it wasn't as interesting to me as a as a film as something else that would be, you know, a little more what I what I hope to do differently than I've done before, and then yeah, you know, I started to get into it, and then the the project kept getting better and better and better and more interesting, and then. I, once I got it, it's like I, now I have to make this unique. I have to make this mm. good. I have to make. I, I have to turn this into something where um, I can't let down the enormity of the project and the and what it's trying to, to replicate. So you could even
2: tell in the ramp up to it, like Ron Howard, like these people joining that it was gonna be something special?
1: Well, at, at first it wasn't, you know, at first it was like, well, okay, it's uh, and, and I didn't really wanna do a kind of a, a, a super reverent version of it that didn't have any meat to it, yeah. uh, and, and sort of human frailty and and coincidence and luck that that as opposed to we're all great human beings, uh, and then uh, uh, I think John Sales wrote a draft of the script and the script just went like wow that got mm. interesting and then Tom Hanks was on board and it was like and he just came off of uh, uh, Philadelphia and I think um, uh, Forrest Gump so yeah. he was at the height of his career and it, and it started to change and then I started to look at it differently you know as soon as you go to Cape Canaveral and you're and we're allowed to see all this stuff because we bought it. We own right. it as taxpayers. We own it, so it's like carte blanche if, you know, it's like here. It's That's
2: funny. I never. I would have never.
1: Uh... I didn't think that either, and um, and so you get moved by the enormity of w- what happened. And I remember here, obviously, heard about it, and then seeing it um, uh, when the, we landed on the moon and all that yeah. stuff, and the, and how it felt to the world. And I think everybody gets infused by that. So now it's almost impossible not to make a great film if you're moved by something. And yeah. that's something I discovered in my career a long time ago is that if you feel something, it transmutes into the film. Yeah. If you feel nothing, it comes out to be nothing. It might be technically good, but it has no staying power because it doesn't, there's nothing of you, there's no emotion, no point of view that is in there because you didn't have one when you did it. Uh, but when you do, all of a sudden it comes out. So you know that, that may be a contribution uh, uh to the, the the film is that you when you feel something titanic was another example it's like you cannot not be moved by looking at the footage of the titanic underwater just it's impossible i mean certainly impossible for me
2: titanic specifically i mean james cameron has always been sort of on the forefront of massive movies you know yeah. especially now um i know you have like a an uncredited something on on avatar
1: well it's right. not uncredited not on this one uh, um uh, on the first one is i i um actually after i did aviator i i had to do a uh, i'll try to give this a short story i had to do a plane crash for martin scorsese right. talk about a movie that was you know one of those things that had a great relationship and all that stuff with certainly with marty i i did and so i you know i don't want to blow it You know, I've never done a plane crash before. And so I had to come up with a way that I could learn on the job without anybody seeing me learn on the job. So it became, had a, had a guy create a CG animation, and then I would photograph it using uh, pan and tilt wheels because I can operate, and I edit. So it was like, let me just see if I could piece this thing together, knowing how I have to ultimately shoot it for money reasons and stylistic reasons. The, uh, you know, a lot of it was miniatures and, and everything else mm-hmm. and rigs and stuff like that. So let me design the um, plane crash in a way that can be photographed yet still be exciting. And so I used a computer... And it was essentially, it amounts to a game engine. It was called Motion Builder. And then I would go cut it on my Avid and piece together the sequence as, as you see it. Uh, and I thought it was such a cool thing mm-hmm. that this is the way of working. And if you ha- find the money and you had a motion capture stage, you can do everything. Because the problem I had when I was doing that is we animated oh. Leonardo DiCaprio in the cockpit, even just for previs form, yeah. just to get the thing. And as I was cutting it, it's like, well, I can't leave the shot on as long as I think it'll play cause the cartoon of it looks so goofy. Mm-hmm. So motion capture would make it look correct and then it would be a correct edit. It would be, now I would make these choices. So I, you know, I dreamed of, you know, well that's the way to do that instead of hand animating something, right. unless you have a great animator and it costs a lot of money for essentially what amounts to throwaway work. And so I went to Jim, who's gonna do a different movie, he's gonna do Battle Angel. And I said, you know, you'd love this cause mm-hmm. he likes to do everything himself. You would love this and he, Got excited by the idea, and so we set up the stage of all the things I think that would make it work. And and uh, we, you know, there's a lot of innovations that are still in use today. The equipment's better, the uh, the, the software's more stable, but it's the same idea. At any rate, I, that was my I as like the I created the stage and the idea of of how we would shoot it. We would uh, design and 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 essentially direct the scene, and then it gets. Down the uh, in the, the Weta pipeline of making it an, you know as photorealistic as they're right. going to make it um, uh, and so that was my title as like pipeline engineer or some kind of yeah. weird weird title but
2: it seems so uh, simple but it's like I mean,
1: well, no one's done it like that before. No one, you know, and, right. and anything that we do that's interesting is the force of will of doing it. It's like, and other people have had ideas and they abandon them. They do it for one shot. And it's like, no, you could do it for the whole movie. Yeah, and yeah. and if you're, you know, and you also take into account somebody like Jim, Jim likes to do everything himself. And he can't be the guy in the computer doing it because he's removed from it. He doesn't know how to operate the thing and you know, all that stuff. So the Jim Cameron of it all is not, readily accessible unless you give him a camera. Yeah. And unless you give him an edit. And if he moves the camera and it's like, oh, move faster. No, go slower, go here. But put a 14 on, let's do this. You know, all the Jim Cameronness of it all. So I, I used to call it Jim Cameron capture is what we were doing. Interesting. It's capturing the verve of his shooting style, his directorial style, which is very, you know, he has a thing in his head and then he keeps on working it until it comes out and he has great taste. But without the device to actually do it, he can describe it to you mm-hmm. and the limitation is how good you are and how good your interpretation is of this idea. Yeah. So the fact that we remove that portion of it and it's like, do exactly this. Yeah. This is what I want. It was so frustrating to me to talk to as good as they are, and they're very good. CG artists, if you're not a cameraman, we realize that we take a camera and we make 15 or 20 iterations before we settle on this. It's a little higher, right. a little lower, move over yeah. here, move the move the picture in the background, slide this over, move the chair over. You're you're making all these. Well, those decisions make the shot, right. and if you give it to somebody else who is insensitive to that, they just plop a thing on, and it's like, you know, like I went to a CG artist, it's like, what lens you got on? I don't know. Yeah. Well, it means something. The lens means something. The proximity of the person to the lens suggests something uh, very yeah. tangible. And so they didn't even know to care about that. And then it's like, you know, did you try over here? No. And the computer is not the device to do that on, it's not real time. So, you know, I needed to come up with something that was real time. And that's what I came up with when, uh, when you do motion capture. Grab the camera, and you, what you see is yeah. as if you're shooting with a regular uh, analog yeah,
2: camera. Yeah, it's the it's like the melding of the human with the computer, as opposed to yeah. I,
1: you know. I, I liken it to if you play the piano and you're a composer, you sit down to write a composition, and you hit one note, you wait three minutes, and you hit the other note, and you wait another three minutes, hit the other note. That's what it's like to keyframe something, yep. as opposed to you do that and go, ah, let's do my little, let me do a little more, a little less, a little less. And you keep on searching for the notes that make the combination that makes the music that you want to make. Yeah. Well, you need the iterative real-time feedback and then the happy accident, I made a mistake and I hit the wrong note, but that sounded really good, let me, t- let me do that.
2: And it needs to be real time. It needs to be like some...
1: Well, it's definitely real time for somebody like me. You know, I, right. I, 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 I respond with some degree of spontaneity where I have an idea in my head, but it's not fully baked and I am looking for better. If you're not looking for better, you do a drawing and you do exactly that. Right. And that's why I'm not a big storyboard fan. It's like, well, I don't know that you explored every opportunity here. I don't even know how you drew that. You drew it in your living room with no input whatsoever, and you just satisfied X number of people are in the frame. I mean, I, I I don't
0: really get that. This podcast is a production of Musicbed, the standard in music licensing for film, TV, and advertising. From indie artists on the rise to leading composers, Musicbed has curated the best roster of musicians for your films. Go to musicbed.com and use the promo code Legato to get your first month free on a standard subscription.
2: I've been doing something recently I want to get your opinion on for pre-production because I hate storyboards too. Because, like you just said, I don't know who you are yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Like, I have one or two storyboard artists that I love to use. But even still, it's like maybe 15% of what I actually want. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe. Um, so I started using VR um, mm-hmm. and basically going into locations, yeah, like, and then scanning the rooms, putting on VR, and then actually holding a camera and walking around the room in six degrees of motion. And sometimes you could even be there with a the DP, you know, like mm-hmm. two separate headsets in two different rooms or something, and you can get the, get in there and actually create the lensing choices that you want. And then I'll give the wireframe to a storyboard artist. Mm-hmm. And they they can kind of touch it up and stuff like that. That's been like such a world changing like process for me.
1: That is the way to do it. Now, when we did Titanic, we did a version of that that Mm -hmm. was analog, which is a lipstick camera, and we had a 35 foot paper mache Titanic and little figurines on it. And we took a camera and we would do that. And so it's a real lens, a real thing. Like a live feed. Like it's, it's a you live can get. feed. Wow. So, you know, it's the size of a, literally it's like a size of a big Sharpie. And you have a lens and we calibrated what they were. This one's a 20, this is a 40, this is wow. a 100. <clears throat> and you do that. And now that's a real shot. And then you take that, back then it was a, a video printout, because it was done on you know normal uh, standard definition. And then the storyboard artist would make a board of that, but that did reflect your shot. Mm-hmm. And part of like what you're doing, which is correct, is that you're living the shot, as, yeah. as opposed to you doing a sketch of something. But you're not in it. You're not going, you know what, if I was in this room, boy, the drapes are interesting, the fireplace is interesting, I just don't know what the shot is, and let me change up my mind. Let me put the chairs over here instead of you know. You you're continually searching for the thing that I don't think a storyboard artist is doing that, because they have to draw everything, and then that becomes a statement in itself, and that's the work that you've done. This one is I'm still building. Move that over here, and and I would I use VR all the time. That's mm-hmm. how that's the easiest way to to get what you want is you walk into it, and that's where I wanted to, when I was doing uh, the original uh, Avatar when I was building the stage. The VR component was something that I really wanted to get, but no one had it yet. I mean, that was not a thing yet. Now it's easy. Like I, you know, today I was working in Unreal and I put on the goggles and I walk around and here's the yeah. Dolly track. And here. And ultimately that's what we did for Lion King too, which is the improvement over Jungle Book is we used VR to do every camera setup because you work the way you normally work and, right. and uh, had, uh, work with Caleb Dachanel, on the great, Talk about being in this place, one of the great cinematographers ever. And he could put the goggles on and start doing what he did for And it still feels like him. Well, it still feels like it's because those are his choices. Right. That's the choice he would have made. There's a little bit of a separation because he's not seeing it in real life. And I, even the discussion I have with him is like, you know what? It's not that different from what you normally do. Because when you walk into this room, it's not lit yet. Right things aren't really set up, you make a choice and put the camera over here and all of a sudden, then you put a light over here and put a light over here. So you're still seeing it in a rough form, not its finished form. It just looks like you are after the fact. But in fact, if you really would trace the history of setting up a shot, you do it without anything there. You pick the location usually in advance. Um, which doesn't have anything. doesn't there's no even, art
2: direction, or right? anything. no yeah.
1: art direction, no, anything. And you go, yeah, I can imagine it's going to be this. So it's not that huge a leap, and especially when you describe it that way, where, yeah, it's kind of cartoony, and we are now it's quite a bit less so with Unreal 5, and and it just looks like a real thing. Yeah. You know? um,
2: For people who don't know what we're talking about, Unreal Engine is... How would you describe it? I mean,
1: well, it's a game engine that is uh, that uh, 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 when you do video games and you play and you use the the yeah. thing and do first you know, person shooter games and things like that. That's what makes up the background and it makes up the background in real time. And uh, which interesting enough on, uh, right after I did Titanic, you're always looking for, now that I, I use sort of motion capture and CG water, it was like, what's the next thing? And I was watching my son play, this is like 95, 96, I'm like, that, I was, uh, play a video game. It's like, he's moving the joystick yeah. around and he's moving. <laughs> it's like, why can't I do that yeah. for previs? because otherwise I have to do motion control for that, which is I need a big rig and a setup and people and a big miniature. I, like that would be great to do yeah. that and then I could really figure out what I'm doing and I could do it myself. And uh, at that time it was like, well, that's impossible. It's like, well, it can't be impossible. You're doing it right now, mm-hmm. a joystick is moving Individually, the shot, the camera, the thing, the, the point of view. So why can't I control that? And it's like, it seemed at the time to be impossible. But I always had in the back of my head that that was realistic enough looking in perspective and everything else that it would be useful. And, I, and and you know, Motion Builder became the essentially the game engine that I built right. the, uh, the rest of it. Or I didn't really build anything. It was there and I just used it.
2: Do you have any intuition about how AI is going to sort of change
1: your world? Well, it's... F- it's new enough and far enough along at the same time that you know it's going to have an impact and the as with anything you know it's sort of like when the zoom lens came in everything was a zoom lens yeah. and then it starts to settle back into like color when color came in it was you know big broad you know huge you know bright strokes of right. color and then it became muted and and more tastefully done individualized. So I think AI is going to be that where people are going to go, oh my God, the, it, you know, it wrote my story for me. It's like, yeah, but after a while, that story has no soul to it. Right. it and and what I've learned in the arts over, the, you know, if you feel something, don't know exactly how or why it happens. I so don't even question it. It just melts into the project. And if you feel nothing, it tends to leave you kind of like a like a, with an artificial sweetener aftertaste. Yeah, it's yeah. sweet, but then it's Something's it's not just right. not right. Um, and so I think that at first there'll be this onrush of, you know, you can write rap songs and other songs, you know, write a song in the in the flavor of the Beach Boys, and it'll kind of be that, but it won't be the genius of Brian Wilson. Of course, It yeah. just won't be. And it's whatever was going on that particular day when he wrote it, what influenced him, what other artists were doing, you know, so all those things are so intangible that I have a hard time. I'm usually positive about a lot of things, but I have sort of negativity about that uh, everybody wants to know, well, then we don't need actors. It's like, no, you need an actor because you have to interpret the part of when you would say this, how you'd say it, how much you would pause, you make it your own, make it into something that that reflects something that happened in your life, that somebody has to do that and a machine, can't necessarily do that because it has no feeling of being tired or angry or or jealous. You don't feel like it's going to speed up your any kind of process. Of, oh yeah, uh, it's going to a, a lot of things that we do that we struggle with, including animation. Yeah. When you do machine learning of how something moves, I want you to sit in the chair oh, uh, appropriately. You, yeah. you know, it'll study from real life. You know, all the various th- ways it does it, and then it'll feel pretty natural. And that is. You know, you know what you need. Instead
2: of you animating someone sitting down for uh, an engine to just watch people sitting down and then learn how to animate that themselves is like, I mean, yeah, save two days there
1: you yeah know? two it, days and you believe it you buy it and you yeah. move on and now we could spend more time on the story on the yeah. idea on the because uh, it takes so long to get that yeah that you sometimes have to live with you know this was, was the hard part about when i grew up doing this it would take so long to get to that point there's almost no turning back it's like you sort of have to go with it because to undo it and start from zero again is you know you just don't have the time to do it
2: i have this image in my head of you being like a kid sort of doing like clay animation stuff is that no
1: no, I couldn't do any of that stuff.
2: What was like the very? Beginning? In fact,
1: I didn't like any of that stuff. I mean, it's just like a, a everybody who sort of does what I do, they're all like Ray Harryhausen fans and all that stuff. And I, I was the opposite. I was the kid uh, going, it "Looks like shit." <laughs> I mean, I don't believe any of that. You know, the the, the, the fighting skeletons—it looks like goofy as shit. I yeah, don't know yeah. what that, you know and. <laughs> And, and Godzilla, a friend, you know, took me and he goes, you got to see Godzilla. It's like, I don't want to see Godzilla. Why, why do I want to see Godzilla? Yeah, actually- and I go there and it's like, it's a guy in a rubber suit. It looks yeah. phony as shit. <laughs> I, I, I am not buying what you're saying. And people were really into it. Yeah. And, and, and especially science fiction back then. And I'm not a science fiction fan anyway. But the science fiction stuff was like, I don't believe any of what yeah. I'm seeing uh, I, so I, so it doesn't capture my imagination and so the idea that I even do this for a living and, and everybody talked to oh well of course you were inspired by Ray Harryhausen. Sure, it's like, yeah. and Martin Scorsese even asked me that you know so you must have liked that it's like no I hate that stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean it's, it makes so much sense looking
2: at all your work too because nothing I mean there's really none of your work that I feel like you're always trying to strive for the most reality of a moment it needs to be able to immerse you more instead of take you out of it. Well, my you know?
1: my thing has always been because I love the filmmaking process more, than I love the visual effects process. Mm-hmm. So I want it to not be obvious. And there's a psychological thing when you see things that are not um, real. That if you well, if you could control everything, why would you do that? Right. And you could make it perfect. Why would you not make it perfect? Well, not making it perfect make it makes it feel like. It was there, and you just shot it, and you didn't even care that much about it. It was like, yeah, let me do, let me get a quick cutaway of you doing this with the lamp behind you, and I'll shoot. And as opposed to now, it's an effect, and we're like, move them a little two inches to right. the right. No, move them here and change. You know, you would perfect this moment that you would never perfect because it wasn't important enough to perfect. Yeah, it was important to tell the story, uh, but it doesn't want to draw that much attention to it. And, and usually, I would see an effect would draw attention to itself and invite <clears throat> criticism. Right. Invite the unbelievability of it, it's like something's wrong with it. Another story on Apollo 13, one of the producers said, well, we can film all this outer space stuff before we shoot. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I said, well, why not? It's easy. It's, you, I said, because I don't know what the film is, so I don't know how it fits into the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know the style of the film. I'm not going to you know, shoot these kind of 2001 shots, because that's your inspiration is what you've seen before, right. with no sense of why would I shoot it this way compared to that way based on the emotion of the moment and they were like what you know like what are you talking about and it's like and and sure enough when I did it I watched the movie and I I did it to music because I it's like I, I scored in my head and then physically um the moment that that this heroic thing was supposed to take place, and it changed and altered the shot I would do. It mm-hmm. just automatically said, not here, there. And um, I sent it over to Ron Howard, uh, one of the shots, uh, which was sandwiched in between this live action piece, and they saw it by on its own, and they said, well, I don't even get this shot. What is, I don't, it doesn't look like anything. I said, you have to cut it in, because it f- feels like the outgoing motion and feels like the incoming motion. Mm-hmm. and if, and it fits into that piece, but it doesn't live on its own. And it was like, all right. And so they cut it in and went, yeah, it works. Yeah. Because it was meant to work in that piece, in that piece only, because that's the shot you would have come up with if you could control everything. Right. And it's like, just the nature of not controlling it was a choice that you shouldn't make. And just making the choice and say, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do it this way, made it that much better. And that's kind of what my, you know, if one were to condense my career is always going for the cinema of the moment not the effect of the moment and do everything in my particular case do not draw attention to it make the story work make it have a reason for its being you don't want to cut to anything unless it it does something Mm -hmm. to wow you and go wow a cool shot It's like you're out of the movie now i'm all of a sudden i'm seeing something else and i'm reacting to something else than the emotion of the moment you know when i do second unit too it's like it needs to look like Martin Scorsese directed it and Bob Richardson shot it for my work to fit into that movie. And the more I can do that, the more no one knows that I was even present doing it. And that meant that there was not another mindset that was present doing it. And it feels like the film. And that that to me is the greater success than people going, great shot you did. uh, uh, In fact, I, I get my own little joy out of somebody when they're revering to somebody else's work so you know I loved the shot that this guy did it was really great and I was like yeah I did that yes yeah, um, <laughs> so I I wonder if
2: there's one, one shot like that that you can remember that it, people wouldn't know it was you people wouldn't uh, recognize that it was even shot somewhere else, you know, like, is there one
1: shot that you can Well, there's to? a, I mean, I've, I've done a lot <laughs> um, uh, good or bad, uh, uh, so it's hard for me to pin down, you know, it's like uh, One that sticks know, with you, one of The, like, the I mean, one I think that probably still resonates uh, and I did a TED Talk on it or, or included is um, w- when I did the uh, Titanic and I did the underwater photography to look like uh, Jim Cameron's underwater photography, he had uh, two mirror subs, one was photographing the other mirror sub and the Titanic. And if you saw two mirror subs, then I had to do it because there was, right. was not three mirror subs. And then I got the, the look of the underwater. It was shot with an 18-foot replica of the underwater wreck, up hanging upside down, two dollies for the mirror 18 subs. 18 feet. Yeah, that's 18 that's feet. That's massive. For a miniature. Oh yeah, I mean, then th- that's a small miniature compared to we had. You know, we had versions that were eighty feet long, wow. you know, chunks of it. So it's completely phony. I mean, it's it's literally a thing hanging upside down, shot in a garage in smoke with two uh, subs. That you know, you see the sticks that are holding them up, and they had to be painted out. And we had to do repeat passes where we didn't have the, those things, so it could be painted out successfully. And I lit it in such a way that I took advantage of what film and. And pre-flashing film does to match the light attenuation of underwater lights, and and I, we added particulate, and and when you put them together, you can't necessarily tell directly what's a Jim Cameron shot mm-hmm. of the real thing and what's my shot. If you do the job well enough, um, it transcends how it was done and just becomes. Now, do I like it? Do I, yeah. does it? Does it affect me in some way? Does it tell me a story? I did another one that I loved doing because it was so much fun to do was uh, in um, Aviator. I shot an in-camera, what would be considered a hanging miniature of the uh, Hercules that um, that was flying. It was, it was a, a newsreel cameraman. We're in a boat, and I had the RC plane that was about 25-foot wingspan. So wow. compared to the Spruce Goose, which is enormous, it was 300-foot wingspan. Of the This was 25 feet. Uh, and to get the illusion of a hanging miniature is that even if I put it here, you can't look like it's here. It has to look like it's out there. So I to make right, the right. cameraman look like he's photographing something there, and he was also fearful because the, the, the RC plane is like six or seven inches away from him, but in in the shot, it looks real. It looks like it kind of is what I said. And it's seamless because it's shot in camera. So there's no matte lines, there's no sense of artificial lighting or anything else. It's just, it's 100% real. And you pulled off this kind of magic trick, this in-camera illusion, which are very satisfying to do, by the way.
2: Do you feel like you still have sort of imposter syndrome sometimes? Oh, what? Imposter syndrome.
1: I don't know what that means, imposter syndrome.
2: So like imposter syndrome, meaning like, you're stepping into a job and you feel unqualified or you feel. Oh, like yeah, you're... all the time.
1: That's, that's that's common. I think if you do any of this stuff for a living, if somebody says, you know how to do this, it's like, I don't know how to do it. You know, I've been shooting for a long time and um, I'm impressed by everybody who, you know, walk through this room pretty much yeah. and, and you see their work and it's like, well, I don't know how you came up with that. That's amazing. And Given the opportunity, I don't think I could do that. And then I, I was I had a, a, a fill-in for somebody, and I walked on the set, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I don't know anything about this. And then you sit down and oh, put the camera over here, and oh, that light's too far, moving about. And all of a sudden, your professionalism, your craft, takes over from your intellect of I'm just I'm just out of film school. I don't I have no idea what yeah. I'm doing. And I think everybody. I, I read a, a book on. Um, uh Milos Foreman, and he had the you know everybody has the imposter syndrome. It's like, it's some, one day someone's gonna find out. I, don't, I have no clue what I'm doing. And I and, and I and I think the the um, being afraid that you're going to be found out causes you to do homework and work to ensure that that doesn't happen. Uh, and I think I've had that all my career. I still do. So we're gonna do like
2: just some like fire rapid fire questions. Okay, these are shorter in nature. What are three essential tools for your creative process?
1: Uh, the three essential tools would be, right now it's using Unreal uh, to fabricate, create a shot, um, uh, an Avid to edit it on, and uh, uh, like an After Effects or something else to adjust or create. Uh, or, and sometimes I use like Cinema 4D. So the ability to create and, and, and manifest something, put it into a shot, and then edit it together in a sequence is something that I need to do my work.
2: What's your favorite scene from a movie or a TV show where music has elevated the moment
1: wow jeez. uh well one of my favorite m- movies of all time was there's a, have so many it's hard I, I, well the godfather is my entree into the movie business like i saw that and it's like i want to do that yeah. and the music as soon as the music starts it puts me into the movie so it's just about any scene in in the godfather where the music yeah. becomes part of the of the mix i love music in, in films though if you had to pick a different career what would it be well, I couldn't do a different career, but if I could, if I had the ability to do it, I, it'd probably be composing music. I would mm-hmm. say there's something about it, has the same kind of resonance. Maybe not be the proper word for the same thing where you you uh, uh, create something that puts you into a mood or an emotion that is very powerful and and all that and and it's kind of belies how it's done. You know, I don't, there's something about it that's really appealing.
2: What's one movie that you're most
1: excited to see this year? I've seen most of them. Um, uh, the movie I was most surprised at, which is a, I'm not answering your question, uh, was because uh, I didn't really want to see it. Was uh, Top Gun? Yeah, of course. It was like I think like, I don't know if I've seen that movie. Like, and then I saw it. I was like, <laughs> wow, that's a pretty good movie. <laughs> it, it was.
2: I feel like it was a perfect movie.
1: It was really for like uh, when it came out, the month
2: it came out, like the, where the world was, and the execution of the movie. It, and
1: all of it. it's like, we, do we need another Top Gun movie, yeah. really, out of all apparently the things we could did. do? And apparently <laughs> apparently, uh, having another one was, uh, was, was right, on the, yeah. right on the money. <laughs> and then, you know, I enjoyed Avatar uh, as well, and it was fun to see it um, yeah. and, and know what, you know, I know Jim's love of underwater stuff. So, I mean, that had to be good, and it, it was. Yeah. It exceeded that.
2: All uh, right. What is the last song that you listened to?
1: Well, the last song cause I was working on this film that we shot in Italy was uh, uh, was Opera. Uh, and I don't remember the title because I remember the music but I don't remember yeah. the title. It's not Dorma because I use that on my, my sample reel for all the stuff I do because there's something about opera and what I shoot and how mm. I like to shoot that, that, um, that fits together. It kind of completes the visual.
2: What's something that you always bring to set? Well,
1: now my iphone pretty much is yeah. that it's the it's the the little uh it's the holy grail of uh, of of uh, information and 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 i take a picture with it i used to bring cameras to the set when i would try to figure out a shot i would do i needed to look through a lens to yeah. to do it so now i use that
2: what's uh with all the collaborations you've had in your career what's one that you would love to have that you haven't had yet uh,
1: probably, uh, uh, there's probably several, but I would, uh, the one that comes to mind right now is Peter Weir. Mm. that uh, uh, what he did and I study it and I use it a lot is that he listens to classical music as he walks onto the set he says it's like walking through a museum so somehow what he shoots and what he does and the type of films he makes I I sense that there's Mm -hmm. something about it and then I used it in, in any of the things I did that was successful music became a huge portion of getting me in the mood to see things differently, and uh, and M- uh, Marty does that a lot too. Mm-hmm. Marty will pre-select the music that he's going to shoot the scene and put it against, and it I'm sure it affects him and the way the films come out. And it certainly affected me. I mean, I did, uh, did that with Apollo, the launch sequence in Apollo 13. I picked out heroic music from uh, from uh, movies and I shot it to that music. And then when I stripped it out and gave it to Ron Howard, uh, they kept the scene intact. And Jamie Horner scored it knowing the the, the, the melody or the, or the rhythm that was built into the edit, which was built into sub edit which is the shot itself the yep. beginning middle and end and so he he was able to embellish and make something that fits so perfectly with that so it was something that's like well there's the trick i mean there's yep. the, 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 the that's the thing to do the to give it that extra bit of a life so crazy how music can do that to you it's well, just the
2: subtext of your
1: imagination, it, you know? It does, and I guess maybe it affects everybody a little differently. It's not an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's, it's before then. And, and when you talk to really great composers, they have a sense of the story that is comes to them musically of why they pick this instrument over that instrument why they play that because they do they have a varied career they do all yeah. kinds of things but somehow that story tells you to do it this way and much like cinematography and directing the story tells you well the vocabulary i need to use on schindler's list is way different than vocabulary on jaws right and so there's something about that and then you add the music to it the you know all of a sudden you're into another world and uh, um uh, you know so it's pretty amazing yeah well, Rob,
2: I really appreciate you. I feel honored to, to speak with you. Oh, Thanks for coming thank and doing the uh, show. You shouldn't feel the honored, show. but <laughs> good. good <laughs> no, I, I genuinely feel, I mean, I'm, whether I knew it or not, I've been affected by your films oh. and, and the projects that you've, you've put a part, been a part of. So this has been a, kind of a dream of mine. So I appreciate you talking with us.
1: Oh, you're welcome. My
2: pleasure.
0: This podcast is a production of Musicbed, the standard of music licensing for film, TV, and advertising. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with another filmmaker you know, and subscribe to be notified for the next episodes.